to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, um, the ancient Israelites once asked, once asked what, what, what people has a God so near that he will hear them when they call? A God so near that he communicates to them, speaks to them and gives them laws gives them direction, gives them understanding of life. And we think the very thing this morning, God is so near, well, you are, to give us a book, to give us words that are your words to us that we can hear and listen to and, and read and understand and follow and, and know you and know ourselves. And so, Father, we're very grateful. So that in this morning, I pray that you would... Um, Enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we may know you better. And this I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Ephesians in chapter 2. I want to read verses 11 through 22. Ephesians in chapter 2, please. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, what do we have here in this passage? Um, it, it seems like Paul is saying to us this good news that Jews and Gentiles uh, are now at peace with each other. The Jewish believers and Gentiles believers are together, are in, are in peace with each other uh, because they're, um, they have peace they have peace with God. And I take this emphasis uh, from the fact that he uses the word peace quite often. Uh, we see it uh, four times, verses 14, 15, then twice in verse 17. Notice verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace, uh, who has made us both one. Uh, we see in verse um, 15 that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. Uh, we see it in verse 17, and he came and preached peached, you are far off, peace for you are near, uh, and, and to those who are near, 
Um, so we, we see that he's talking about bringing peace. And, and he's talking about two groups of people in the very beginning, both Jews and Gentiles, and, and bringing peace with, uh, between the two of them, those two groups, and also uh, peace with God. We see it because there's a number of words, and I could read the whole thing again because these words sort of emphasize uh, the fact that, that, that there's peace, there's reconciliation. Verse 16, we see the word reconcile. That's a word that says uh, there were two who once were apart who are now reconciled together. So Jews, Gentiles um, reconciled to each other and indeed, uh, indeed to God. Uh, we see in verse 14 that there were two, now there's one. So he has made us both one, so two becoming, if you will, joining together, being one. And then the way he expresses it in, in verse 15 is that there's one new man or one new person, one new humanity even. So we see the Paul's emphasis in these verses that there's, there's, there's peace. Yes, peace with, between us and God, but also peace um, between us. Jews and Gentiles particularly. And then he uses some images in the very end of this uh, this passage. He says we're not strangers and aliens anymore, but fellow citizens. So we see we're citizens all together. Um, not one greater than the other, but all citizens together. And then he says that we're members, <coughs> excuse me, of the household of God. And so we're all in the same family together. He emphasizes that. And then he says that we're really being built up to be a temple. The very dwelling place of God. So, so we see that relationship as well. So is he talking about us, believers in Jesus, particularly in that case, Jews and Gentiles, but believers in Jesus as being one, being um, united together. We won't get to all that this week, but that's at least where we're headed. But, 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 but the big question is, so, so what's this all about? And what's the big deal of it? And how does it really uh, relate to us? We know, just from the history of redemption, that God created a distinction among nations when he chose Abraham and his descendants to be his people. So right there we see this distinction, and he chose Abraham and his descendants to be um, his his people. Now, we'll come back to this in a, in a little bit. But, but keep that, just remember that, keep that in mind. That distinction was initially made by God himself. And that created some difficulties. Now, it was designed for Abraham and his descendants, Israel, to be a light to the nations, that they would bless the nations. In fact, you remember the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God said that he was going to make his name great and he'd have many descendants. And those who blessed him would be blessed and those who cursed him would be cursed. But he also said that through his seed, through him, through his seed, through Abraham's seed, through one from Abraham's descendants, all the families or nations of the earth would be blessed. And so we get the sense that this one who was spoken of all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, who would come and undo the sin that Adam had done, would come and crush the head of the serpent, if you will, that, that this one now will come from the seed of Abraham. So God says, well, I'm going to have a nation of people and from whom this one will come. And so we get that. But, but in order for this one to come, you see, this people had to be a people. They had to, they had throughout history, for as long as God had determined it would take, throughout history, they had to be a people. So they had to be separate. They had to be pure in a sense, if you will, as a people, spiritually particularly, but also in the context of their race, so that this very one 
who was promised to come from the seed of Abraham, could. If there was no people of Abraham, there could be no seed from whom you could come. So, so was, there was this distinction, and, 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 and it created some problems, not the least of which, I suppose, is when the Israelites settled in the land that they gave, that God gave to them, God said, now I want you to destroy all these other people. That could be a problem. At least for the other people. At least how they understood this group of people coming in. Now, we understand that looking at it in the context of God had the right to do that because he can judge people for their sins. And so he judged this people by his people, Israel, who didn't worship him, who had rebelled against him and all of that. And so we understand it at at, at that level, at least. And God was saying to his people, now this will be your land and I want you to be separate. And so he gave them all kinds of laws and ordinances that kept them separate. He gave them a sign, this sign, circumcision. And this sign said, this group of circumcised people, the people of the circumcised group, they have my sign on them. They're my people. They're separate from, from everyone else. So this sign keeps, keeps you different, keeps you distinct, keeps you separate. Uh, He gave them laws that would keep them different than the nation. He gave them food laws. He says, I want you just to eat like this. If people don't eat like this, they don't get to eat with you because I'm keeping you separate from them. He gave them laws on how they were to dress, laws on how they were to do their business, most particularly agriculture. This is how you're to plant and this is how you're to harvest and all those kinds of things. You're going to be different than the other nations around you in all these different ways. And then he said, I want you to worship in a particular way. This is the way to worship. And no one can really worship me unless they worship the way you worship in the context of tabernacle temple worship, in the context of priests who intercede for you and represent you, in the context of sacrifices that are made. All of these things, you see, make you different than all the other nations. Now, in some sense, the other nations are to look at that and go, wow, that's the way to worship God. And, And so then they should, in some sense, enter through you because you are my my people, these commandments, these ordinances, kept the people of Abraham, the Israelites, separate from everyone else who were known as the uncircumcised or as, as Gentiles. But you know what happens because of our sinful condition is that when we have a gift that no one else has, we have a tendency to think that we're better than everyone else. And when we have a tendency to think that we're better than everyone else, we begin to boast in all the wrong things, particularly in ourselves, and how worthy we must be, how good we must be, how wonderful we must be to have this this gift. And, And usually, we don't mind letting other people know that. And then the others who don't have that gift look at us and say, why do you think you're so much better than we are? And then you can see hostility begins to develop. Well, people say, no, 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 this is the way you worship God. And other people go, no, 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 I'm going to worship God this way. And you can see the division and the hatred that comes into play here. I mean, we even see it in the New Covenant. We even see it after Jesus came. Remember, Jesus came and said, I want you to make disciples of all nations. That didn't happen immediately. And Jesus said, uh, my spirit's going to come upon you in such a way that you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That didn't happen immediately. Even Peter, when he's preaching in Acts chapter 2, says that, that this promise is for those who are near. We have that same language here. Those who are near, that is, Israelites. And also those who are far off, those who aren't. 
Now, you may hear that and go, well, that's for the Israelites that are near and the Israelites are far off. Or or that's for disciples to the ends of the earth, the Israelites that are here and those who are far off. That isn't what Jesus meant, nor Peter, but, but it took a while for all that to happen, so much so that it took a vision. Remember Peter in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter sees this vision of, of this uh, blanket with food on it that he wasn't supposed to eat as an Israelite. <laughs> they kept him separate from the other nations. And, and the word to him in the vision was eat. And he goes, I can't do that. And he goes, yes, you can. Because you don't need to be separate from the nations anymore. Because the Messiah has come. All that's been fulfilled. All of these things, as the author of Hebrews would put it, are obsolete. All those things that kept you distinct from all the other nations don't need to be anymore because because the promise has been fulfilled. The Messiah has come. The promise was out of the seed of Abraham when would come to bless all the families of the earth. He's come to bless, literally, all the families, all the nations of the world. And so that's not needed anymore. And so, but still... Uh, by this time, there was great hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And so Gentile Christians would ask the question, what's my status here if I follow Christ? The Jewish Christians would ask, who are these outside of Israel who are now receiving this salvation? You know, that was the, the sense of it. Uh, in, in fact, um, one commentator in trying to describe the hostility between Jews and Gentiles puts it like this. He says, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he has made. It wasn't even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need. For that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with the Gentile was the equivalent of death. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, we may not have the same sense of laws from ancient Israel that kept them together and gives a sense of keeping us out. And I know that we've evolved so much as a culture that there is no longer much hostility among us. He said, dripping with sarcasm. (laughs) There's still great hostility. There's still distinctions that we have in our boasting, uh, in in ourselves. But Paul's point, on the one hand, is even the deepest enemies, naturally speaking, can, through the cross of Christ, must through the cross of Christ, will through the cross of Christ, if they come to faith, be united together. Just like these ancient Jews and these ancient Gentiles come together, uh, you see, and, and even whatever would keep us apart, whatever would keep us distinct from one another, naturally speaking, whether it's our wealth or our good looks or not so much, or our education uh, or our race or our nationality, um, our social status, our political party affiliations, um, how we school our children, 
how we understand certain relationships within our own nuclear families, that, that those shouldn't keep us apart, that in fact, that through the cross, Christ has joined us all together. You see, the cross of Jesus not only has the power to reconcile us with God, but has the power to reconcile us to each other. So that's Paul's point here. In fact, he uses the same outline here as he did in chapter 2 in the first 10 verses. You might remember there that he was talking, Paul was, about the power of God to reconcile us to God. God's power to reconcile us to God. He began in the first opening verses of chapter 1 to tell us that our salvation is from God. He's the one, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the Father who has chosen us and predestined us. And the Son has redeemed us and the Spirit has applied it to us. And then Paul prays that we'd know that, that we'd understand that, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know know God, that we would know the hope to which he's called us, we'd know the glorious inheritance, this riches that is ours in the saints, and that we would know the power of God, the power of God that's such, that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things, and then given to the church. And he says, well, we know that power. If you're a Christian, you know that power. And the outline that he gives us is that he says in, in the first three verses of chapter 2, he says, um, this is who you were. And then in verses 4 through 9, he says, but this is what God did, but God. And verse 10, this is who you are now. We know that outline. Verses 1 through 3, he says, you're dead in trespasses and sins. You're enslaved to following the world and the devil and your own passions. And by nature, you're under the wrath of God. That's it. And you go, well, that means I'm, 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 I'm hopeless and helpless. And the apostle would say, yes, of course, but God, verse 4, this is what God has done. What did God do? He raised us up together with Christ. That is, he gave us life. We were dead. No, he gave us life. Who can do that? Only God can do that. He's the giver of life. Only God can do that. And so he gives us life spiritually, particularly he joins us he raises us with Christ. So the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead was raised us, you see, given us life. And then what did he do? He seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Well, he's seating us with the one who's ruling over all things so that we too then can have power, the very power of God to live this life to which he's called us. The very power of God to, by his strength and help, to overcome the temptations that we face, you see. And God has done that. Um, he's... He's, he's raised us. He's seated us. He's saved us then. He's rescued us from the wrath of God. That's what God did. And now this is who we are. We are God's workmanship. Created. We were dead. Now we're created again. Created in Christ Jesus uh, to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. No longer are we walking in trespasses and sins. No longer are we walking enslaved to all the things that the world or the, the devil or our flesh has, has led us to do, all those trespasses and sins. But now we're walking in the good works that God has prepared for us to do. You see, it's a, it's a complete transformation from dead to life, to walking in sin, to walking with Christ. It's, it's amazing. And now he's going to say, with the same kind of outline, uh, something similar about the power of God. Uh, we, we start out in the first couple of verses here, and he says, I want you to remember who you once were. And then I want to show you, beginning of verse 13, what God has done 
And then I want to understand, I want you to understand now who you are. Quickly, let's take a look at this. Verse 11. He says, therefore, remember. Verse 12, he says, remember. So he's going back. He says, I want you to remember something. I want you not to forget this. It's easy for us to forget our need. Once it's been fulfilled, we so much like to boast. We so much like to say, I wasn't all that needy. We, 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 we like uh, to be able to show well. The Bible keeps uh, disallowing that, doesn't it? Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh. Remember that you were at one at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And so it begins by saying, you, you're known as the uncircumcised. Now, that was most often an expression of derision uh, by Jews to Gentiles. We're the circumcised. We're the people of God. That's what it meant. We have the sign of the covenant on us. Uh, we are Abraham's. God has made promises uh, to us. We're the people of God. Uh, by the way, you're not. You're the uncircumcised. But Paul gives a little hint at all of this uh, when he says that uh, what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, that is human hands. Now, Paul's other expression is one that he uses from time to time, which is not made by human hands, not made by human hands, meaning made by God. And what he's what he's saying is that this circumcision is, is of no value at all unless... It's the circumcision made by God in the heart. If it's just an outward sign, it does you no good unless there's something true in the heart. So he's, he's already saying that. I mean, he made the case when he wrote to the church in Rome. You can see this in Romans chapter 2 and verse uh, somewhere. Verse 28, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one Inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, if it's just an outside thing, it's made with hands, it it really is of no value. So he's already making his case here for joining us, joining us together. In fact, he would write very pointedly to the church in Galatia, another Gentile church, to the Galatians. In Galatians in chapter 6, verse 15, he says... For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what really matters. Something not made with human hands, but by God. So if you just have this outward sign, it's not that big a deal. It's not of any value to you unless it's from God. But this is how you were known. You were, you were outside of the people of God. Then he says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. And now he uses some overlapping expressions. Separated from Christ, meaning that Christ was promised to come through the Jews, through the Israelites. You remember when Jesus was with this Samaritan woman, we call her the woman at the well, he did make mention of this. He, says, he said, salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from Israel. What did he mean by that? Well, it's coming through Israel. It would be a Jewish Messiah, a Messiah who was part of Israel from the 
seed of Abraham. And so he said, you were separated from Christ then even, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning you, you didn't enjoy the rights and the privileges that were true of, of those in Israel at that time. Romans and um, chapter 9, uh, verse 4, the apostle says, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, and this is just kind of a, a hymn of praise to God as an Israelite, to, to what his people, what the people of Abraham had enjoyed as being part of the commonwealth of, 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 of Israel. And he said to the Gentiles, none of that was true for you. In the history of redemption, it just wasn't true for you. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, that is the covenant made to Abraham, um, through his seed would bless all the nations of the world. And, or the covenant with David, the promise that one would sit on David's throne forever and ever and rule and reign and all of that. So you were strangers to the covenants. Therefore, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. That's your situation as a, as a people, you're outside of all this. But then notice verse 13. Very, This is equivalent to, to chapter 2, verse 4 that said, but God, he just simply says, but now. But now in Christ, this is what's true. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far, you were off from all these, but now that Christ has come, you see, now you've been brought near. That is, you've been brought to God, close to him. You now know what it is to be a people, to be part of a people whose God is so near to them to hear them when they pray, whose God is so near to them to lead and direct their lives. And so all that was in the past, but now you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. Um, His death reconciled you to God, if you're a believer in Jesus. We understand that. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That though we were dead, Christ has come. By his life, he obeyed all the law for us. By his death, he took the curse of the law upon himself, the penalty for all of that, so that if we believe in him, then we're forgiven our sins. We're redeemed. We're bought by him. We belong now to God. And, and that's what he's saying to them. You were far off. Now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he says, he himself is our peace. And we get that. We get that he's our peace with God. Romans, what, five verse, chapter five, verse one says, um, that, uh, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there was once hostility on both sides of that equation. Because of our sin, we were hostile to God, we're rebellious against him, we didn't want to follow him, we wanted to follow the ways of the world, we wanted to follow the ways of, of even his enemy, Satan, we wanted to follow the ways of our own passions and desires, uh, and so, so, so we didn't want anything at all to do with God, and sometimes that rebellion was, was very um, uh, conscious, sometimes it was unconscious, we're just going about our lives, not thinking about God at all. Have you ever wondered? especially before you became a Christian, but even as a Christian, how much of life we live without even thinking about God? How can we do that? How <laughs> we do that? And especially before you became a believer. I, I don't know how distinct that line is for you. For some, it's distinct. For others, not so much. But just thinking that through, 
how much of my life had I lived just sort of without thinking about the one who's loved me and made me and redeemed me and all of that. But, 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 so sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's just not, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's overt in terms of our rebellion against God, sometimes our rebellion is religious. Try to do all these things to make ourselves acceptable to God and look really religious to other people. And, and they, they, they really think we're godly when we're not because we're depending on ourselves and not on God. And sometimes it's just simply irreligious. But however it manifests itself in us, we're running from God. We don't want anything to do with him. And so there's that hostility. And then there's the hostility also that God has towards us. And we say, really, he's... He's angry with us. He's hostile towards us. Yes, yes, yes. He refers to us as, as, as his enemies. Why? Because of our sin. And so as we learned in chapter 2, that we're by nature objects of wrath. And God's wrath, as we mentioned, is his reasonable, his measured, his appropriate, his righteous response to our sin. And what is it? It's wrath. We're condemned by him. And and the cross, we know, dealt with that. It took away all the hostility. It, 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 It paid for the penalty of our sins so that there need not be a case against us any longer on God's front towards us. And then at the same time, by the Spirit who brings it to us, there's an awareness of that deep, deep love of Jesus. And we ask ourselves the question, as the Holy Spirit brings us light, why wouldn't I follow him? Why wouldn't I trust him? Why wouldn't I trust this one who's given himself for me? And then our hostility and rebellion just melts. And there we are, reconciled to God. But the power of God does something else. And the power of God joins us together. For notice, he puts it like this. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two making peace and might reconcile then us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, killing the hostility between us and God and God and us and also each other. Now, how does he do that? Well, we see it very much in the, this relationship between between Jews and, and Gentiles. In fact, there was a, a, a visual of this in the temple. Whether Paul has this in mind to these Gentile believers, I don't know. Whether they knew about this, probably had been told, probably hadn't seen it, but had been told about it. That in the temple, there was one elevation for priests and and, and, and Jewish men and Jewish women, these courts. And then steps below and a wall that kept them from going up those steps uh, was where the Gentiles were. And the sign said that you only, if you're a Gentile, go into the more elevated courts, not only at your own risk, but at your own life. 
That's a dividing wall. (laughs) If you go there, we'll kill you. And he said, no, 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 that no longer exists. Why? Because at the cross, we're all on the same level. (laughs) There isn't an up and a down. (laughs) There's only one level at the foot of the cross. Because we're all sinners in the sight of God, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile or whether you're American or whether you're Chinese or whether you're French or whether you're white or whether you're black or whether you're Asian or Hispanic or whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're educated, whether you're not, whether you're cute or whether you're ugly, whether you're uh, wealthy, whether you're poor, uh, whether you have a sparkling personality or you're really dull. There is no wall among us. Because, you see, there is nothing in which any of us can boast. I can't say, I'm better. You can't say, you're better. And, and we sit here and we go, of course, but, but, but really? Hmm. Really? We're so critical, aren't we, all the time? And again, there's things just in terms of the human condition that we're critical of, uh, in terms of there's better things to do and worse things to do and so forth and so on. We get all of that. But so easily that creeps into us and we want to be like the Pharisee that looks at other people and say, thank God I'm not like, right? I mean, that just, that just flows so easily in the course of our lives. But the cross, when we put the cross between us and others, it tempers all of that. Pride and boasting, hostility. And what the apostle is saying to us is the power of God is such that not only has he taken us from death to life, no matter how it feels on any given day. But he's joined all believers together, no matter how it feels on any given day. That's just a fact. Now, when we get into the other chapters in Ephesians, we'll talk about how to work that out, because we have to work that out. But in the Christian life, you see, everything's done, and then we work it out. How does Paul put it? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work in you to will and to, to work his good pleasure. Christ has done something. He's saved us. Now work that out. He's forgiven you. Now walk that out. He, he's, he's empowered you now. Now live that out, you see, in the course of life. That, that's the nature of the Christian life. It's done and we're living it out until we see it in its fullness. It's done, believe it or not, all believers are joined together. In fact, how does Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? He says that we've all been baptized by one spirit into one body. The Holy Spirit has has baptized us into one body. We're one body. We're one person. We're one new man. That's what he's done. He's taken two and made us one. Two and made us one. You see, in Paul's day, there were two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. But then that became three groups because of Christ. Jews, Gentiles, and the church. People who belong to Jesus. They're one new man. That's why Paul in the end of Romans, in Romans 15, is it? 
that he talks about having one voice to praise God. One voice to praise God. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean really uh, to us? Well, it means. Well, let me just read some Bible. Uh, Galatians three, verse uh, twenty-eight. It means this: There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what's, that doesn't mean that I'm Jewish by nationality or not Jewish, that somehow I change my nationality. No, 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 you're still whoever, you know, wherever you're from. It doesn't mean that there's neither slave nor free, because the truth of the matter is, in the course of this culture and in the course of life, you're still whoever it is that you are. If you're a banker, you're a banker, probably. If you're a lawyer, you're a lawyer. If you're a teacher, you're a teacher. You know, if, if you're a plumber, you're a plumber. Whatever that is, it doesn't change that about you. It doesn't change your social status necessarily. If you're rich or poor or any of that, there's still that. And there's no male and female. That doesn't mean at all that you aren't a, a man or a woman. Um, but what it means is the most important thing about you, your identity, the thing that that's first, if you will, in your life, is that you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. And what that means is that you have more in common than with anyone who's a Christian than you have with a non-Christian who might be your age, who might be in the same political party, who might be of the same race, be of the same nationality, be of the same social status, be of the same income level, be of the same attractiveness, be in the same fraternity, be in the same sorority, be in the same profession, whatever it is that's the same about you that isn't a Christian, you have more in common with another Christian than you have with that person who may line up with you on every e-harmony kind of thing, other than your faith, right? It's a wonderful story told by a man I've quoted before, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who my Respect a great deal, and I think this is helpful. It's always been helpful to me. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was um, in England, um, died in the uh, late 60s. And um, he always made known that, at least as he put it, that the Brits, the British, um, were much more um, influenced by the class system than Americans. I don't know that that's true, but at least it's more honest, more overt, that the class structures, at least in his day, in Britain were quite rigid. And Lloyd-Jones was a physician before he became a minister. He's a physician and a brilliant one in London in a very prestigious practice. His practice of doctors were, their, their particular practice was the physicians to the queen. So you can, you can see that kind of thing about him. And, and again, just a brilliant, brilliant man. We can see that as a theologian, but certainly as a physician. And then he became a Christian, and everything changed. And he sensed a deep call into the gospel ministry. And so he took a mission in Wales. He was from, he was a Welsh. Took a position in Wales at a, at a place that was quite unlike London. There wasn't anybody like him in this mission outpost in Wales. And, and Lloyd-Jones made this comment about himself. He said, I, I finally realized 
that I had been transformed by the gospel, when I enjoyed my conversation with the most humble, as he put it, fisherwoman, I can only imagine what a fisherwoman might be in that context, but in his view, someone he would never have spoken to before, with the humblest fisherwoman in Wales than with anyone from my previous station. What he said was, being a Christian has now transcended my Britishness. That I'm no longer that like that. Because the most important thing, the thing that ties me, is faith in Jesus. And thus, I know that I'm one, one body, one person, with every other believer. Now, I was trying to think of, of things, and these were a bit outlandish, so just go with me on this. But I was thinking, you know, the Nazi in Germany, would have more, who's a Christian, go with me on this, would have more in common to a Jew who was a Christian than he would with his fellow Nazis. That makes sense. I mean, you see that you see how dramatic this is. I mean, it's just dramatic. Or, or a slave owner in the U.S. in the 17th century, would early 17th century, would have more in common. Who was a Christian with a slave who was a Christian than he would with his other slave owners? Now you might say, well, then how can he be a slave owner? And Paul would say, I think that's my point. But still, you see how dramatic this is. That a Democrat who's a Christian has more in common with a Republican who's a Christian than with another Democrat or Republican who isn't a Christian. A Jayhawk who's a Christian. I knew I'd touch you where you live. You get the point. That we're really one. And of course, we know that we're really one together by the power of God. This, this meal has many names in the church. It's called by some the Eucharist, which means to be thankful. Thanksgiving, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, took bread and gave thanks. We give thanks when we come to this table. It's known as the Lord's Supper because it's, it's his. And we come to him at this table to receive from him, to give him thanks the salvation that he has brought to us. And it's also called communion. Because on the one hand, it's representative of and a celebration of our common union with God and also with each other. And so when we come to this table, it's a fellowship table. We're fellowshipping, we're participating in Christ. And we're sharing his body and blood, meaning we're sharing in his work. His work 
to redeem us, his work to bring forgiveness to us, his work to unite us to his Father, his work to give us his Spirit, that everything that's part and parcel of the body and blood of Jesus, we're participating in, we're sharing in as we come to this table. But we don't come to this table alone. Sometimes people say, you know, why can't I have communion by myself on a Tuesday morning at my kitchen table? Well, unless you're infirmed in some way, shape or form, it's because you're alone. It's because we do this together. Because it's not only a private, if you will, a personal participation in all that Christ has done for us, but it's also a participation in what Christ has done for us. It's a participation in each other's lives. There's some ways to take communion. Not everybody likes the whole dipping thing. But but we do the dipping thing in part because it helps us to understand that we, we share in one thing together. We all dip in the same thing. Nobody wants to drink out of the same cup anymore. Right? I can already see you starting to creep out just thinking about it. But so we dip together in that sense. And in one sense, it provides a way for us to understand that, yes, we're all, we're all we're the same loaf, if you will, even though it's all cut up. And in the same cup, if you will, we're participating. We're all in this, in this together. I notice sometimes, I promise not to look today, but I notice sometimes, I'm going to write a book someday about people who come to communion. But uh, uh, I, I don't know how you do it. But, but uh, and, and if, if you lose your thing in the your little piece of bread in the cup, just let it go and get another. That'll be fine. I, I know that I can feel the tension for you. But I know that sometimes husbands and wives come and, and you dip in the cup together. And that's a beautiful, wonderful, sweet thing. But, 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 but that's not what communion's about necessarily. Yes, you and the two of you are joined together wonderfully. But if we all could, if we had a big enough vat and we could all get around, we all did it together. That's what it's about. And so when we're doing this, you see, God is not only strengthening our bond with him, but even in this meal, that he's strengthening our bond with each other. He's saying, come together, church. Take from one loaf. Take from one cup. Celebrate your oneness. And I will bless you. I will bless you with the security of knowing that you belong to me. And I'll bless you with the security of knowing that you belong to each other. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He said, this is my my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks to this too, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring by his death we've been reconciled to God. And by his death, we've been joined together with each other. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, I pray. Take this bread, this juice, set it apart in a way that we know that we're in the very presence of Jesus, this one who has given himself for us. And also we know that we're coming not alone, but with each other. And so we know that we're one, one humanity, one man, if you will, one body, not strangers and aliens to anything from you or each other, but 
citizens. Members of the same household. Of the same temple. The very dwelling place of God. So I pray as we come that you would forgive us and forgive and enable us to forgive others and receive the forgiveness of others. Enable us to participate in all that is true that Christ has done. And even in this moment to share in one another's lives. As a down payment of all that we'll do to bless one another. And this I pray. In Jesus' name.